he was calling me lots of horrible names. And, um, you know, I, I turned around to him and I said, if you really think that I'm all those things, why don't you just let me go? Why would you not just want to be shot of me? And he said, if you don't leave me, you're not those things. Oh, crikey. Hello, and welcome to our Human Givens podcast. I'm Julia Wellstead, and I'm part of the HG team. Now, to help raise awareness of domestic abuse during this Mental Health Awareness Week in 2019, today we're discussing whether and indeed how we can recover from psychological domestic abuse. And because of this, our format today is a little bit different, as I actually have two people with me. Um, Hannah Jackson, a human given psychotherapist, and one of Hannah's clients, Emma, who's kindly agreed to tell us about her own experience of being subjected to prolonged psychological domestic abuse. Hello to both of you, and thank you so very much for agreeing to share your story and experience with us. Now, Hannah, uh, perhaps you could begin by explaining what, what we mean by psychological domestic abuse. Of course, yes. Um, so psychological abuse is often known as um, something called coercive control. And um, coercive control or controlling behaviour became an offence in December 2015. And the Home Office defines it as um, a behaviour which does not relate to a single incident, but it's a purposeful pattern of incidents that occur over time in order for one individual to exert power control or coercion over another and um, by the end of um, March 2018 it was reported that an estimated 2 million adults aged between the ages of 16 to 59 experienced domestic abuse in that year and that was 1.3 million women and around 695,000 men my goodness, that's so, yeah. astonishing yeah. figures, isn't it? And, and uh, in a sense, giving a name to psychological domestic abuse um, has maybe given people a voice to, 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 to stand up and say this Absolutely. is something I'm suffering. So, yeah, so that was um, a 23% increase from the previous year um, of reporting. And I think this really reflects the fact that um, the police have improved their identification recording of um, abuse incidents as crimes and also an increased willingness of victims to come forward. Yes, absolutely. Now, Hannah, let's drill into this a little bit in terms of what are the tools of abuse and, and why is it so hard to break away from that abuse, from the, from the abuser? I think um, I've identified three things to talk about um, tonight. Um, one, of the, one of the tools I think is um, an element of uncertainty. And I don't think that this is just a result of psychological abuse, but it's also used as a tool to keep the victim in a permanent state of indecision um, so that they're unable to take action. Yes. Um, and I think this can be a very subtle way of removing someone's sense of autonomy and control which is one of our essential human needs. Yes. Um, I think there's also something, a term known as gaslighting. And Explain uh, that. Well, this is, a, this is a form of coercive control, which was coined actually from a 1940s film called Gaslight, where in that film, a man convinces his wife that she's losing her mind by slowly manipulating her to believe that this is the case. Um, 
and it's a very um, it's a form of coercive control that's um, very subtle. Um, it makes the victim question their reality and question their sanity, and it's done gradually over time. So even the most self-aware people can be hoodwinked, and the victim doesn't know that someone's doing it, and they may not realise for years. So in that way, one may become dependent on the abuser. Ah, yes. And then I think the third thing that I wanted to talk about was um, something called intermittent reinforcement, which um, it's not simply a case of lack of resources and fear that can hold the victims back, but the psychological dependence that they develop on their abuser. So the victim might be rewarded with inconsistent and occasional attention and then punished with fear of losing the relationship. Right. Yes. So it's it's intermittent. So it's not reliably one or the other. Exactly. So you don't know where you are. You're 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 pulled in one way and then in another direction, yeah. and you're never sure. Gosh, yeah. that's three pretty hard hitting uh, effects, isn't it? Yes, or tools. And uh, sorry. So what what indeed what are the effects of psychological abuse then, given those tools? Well, I think um, Emma might be able to yeah. to speak up here about the effects. I started to feel, I started to realise that I had become very anxious. I noticed that I was suffering from very, very bad insomnia. And um, I mean, I'd had a couple of kids by then, but it wasn't, you know, the children. It wasn't that sort of insomnia. (laughs) It it wasn't that. It was, um, you know, really, I would lie, I would lie awake, absolutely bolt awake. And I, I would start to have these sorts of anxiety attacks. I'd become... Um, depressed and withdrawn um, you know I would wake up in the morning and basically start crying before I'd even got out of bed um, and I, I started having these sorts of um, invasive thoughts about um, you know I wasn't I wasn't suicidal or self-harming but I would have these what, what were like invasive thoughts of me doing things to myself but I didn't want to do it but it was very scary and I, I, I sort of look back now and I, I think I was living in a kind of mental torment. That's how I would describe it. But, in my, but my, my partner at the time was my wonderful partner, just so lovely. Really right, patient. so you, you didn't attach this to him at all? No, he was so patient with all my, in inverted commas, problems. Um, I was very lucky to have someone like him to be so patient with me, given that I had all these problems. Um, and to have someone so caring um, to be my partner. And was that the perception of your friends and family as well? That um, Yeah, I think it was. When, when I started to realise things were, when I started to realise and, and confided in a couple of people, um, people said to me, oh, you know what, I thought something was funny when he <sighs> said X, Y, Z that time, or that struck me as a bit odd when this happened. Um, but this all only came out in retrospect. Yeah. As is so often the case with relationships, um, friends and family might notice something or might think in hindsight something, but they don't say anything at the time. Yeah, I mean, I've gone through, my my mum used to come and visit me and she would go home, she told me afterwards, she would go home and cry um, because she'd say like, I don't know where my daughter's gone. Um, I was unrecognisable, I dressed completely differently. You know, um, I, before I'd been quite a sort of vivacious person and I'd just become, I just, 
you know, I just become this withdrawn, um, you know, I would dress in dark, cut, yes. you know, I would just sort of, I just sort of totally disappeared. I just disappeared. Yes. yes. Um, it's almost the sackcloth sort of, yeah. of dressing, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And, and, um, and so, yeah, my mum and, you know, my mum said it was really weird because your house didn't reflect any of your sort of personality or style. Like it was just like, you'd just, you'd just gone. And she used to go home and cry, but she knew the thing is I was sort of talk. I was open with people that I was suffering with, you know, this sort of strange depression and anxiety. I wasn't like clinically depressed, but you know, obviously I was very low. And um, so they sort of said that, but, but because there's not that awareness of, psychological abuse um nobody really was able to put the pieces you know together any more than I was yeah 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 and how did the, at what point was there a, a point where you just realized that it it was coming from your partner that was a it it was a process so and I think you know because I've you know I sort of um in you know, as part of coming out of this, I've talked to other survivors with similar experiences online and compared experiences. And I think this is quite common is that you have these sort of penny drop moments where you're like, but that, what, that doesn't make sense. Like, why is that happening? And what, um, and I sort of, you know, cause you know, sometimes I make jokes about it. Like, it's like Columbo when he says, there's something that's bothering me, you know? <laughs> yes. There's this thing that's bothering me. <laughs> yes. And I think you start to have these moments, but but then because he wasn't working, um, I and we were struggling with just, you know, with what I was doing, I was offered a job opportunity. I wasn't looking for it, but somebody asked me to take on a, a maternity cover job. Um, and, and it was, you know, full time. So we had, you know, a guaranteed income for the first time in a while. Um, I couldn't not take it. Yeah. Um, and I think a combination of being away from him for those eight hours a day um, and starting to um, have other social interactions in my day. Um, yeah. And also the quality of those interactions was that, you know, if I, if I had a question, it would get answered. <laughs> if uh -huh. I had an opinion, somebody might listen to it. Um, yes. And was he unhappy that you were going out to work or? So he seemed in the beginning, just sort of like you do what makes you happy. But um, he would do things like, you know, at six o'clock when the day ended, he would call me at six o'clock on the dot and ask me if I was coming home. Right. Um, he would always do that in quite an insistent way. And at the time I was just like, oh, he's probably bored and he's just wanting to know when I'm coming home. Yes. But of course, in retrospect, it's not really usual for somebody to call you at 5.57 every day and say are you on your way yeah um and yeah. um and i but think but i think we i think we rationalize everything at the time don't we before we've sort of that's right he just misses me you know he yeah. just misses me he's bored um and um and i think that i started to notice um that how unequal our relationship was in terms of the effort being put in and i started to notice the emotional neglect because um, yeah, because I just had things to compare it with in terms of, as I say, people just treating me. He, he was never, he wasn't overtly aggressive, wasn't overtly sort of mean at that point. But I think he, he was quite neglectful and he could just shut you down or turn you out or sort of switch off to you. 
Yes. And, and I think it, just being an environment around people just acting normally, um, Create. made you realize that yeah well i I, yes. I i it started just very physically i'd cry on the way home and i wasn't sure why and going to work sort of brought on a kind of crisis of my anxiety um about a month after i started and i was referred to cbt on the nhs and she got me to keep a diary with um when i felt energized and happy and when i didn't and that was an eye-opener because i realized that there were times either at work or when i was with the children by themselves that my out of 10 I would go up to an eight in well-being but really specifically the times where I was sort of one or two or even zero were when I was with him and I started to notice that when he came in the room within 20 minutes I would either start crying like I would just start weeping so just weeping into my breakfast yeah. or I would feel like I would have to go and have a lie down and yes. so, and I saw, and then I started to realize that our relationship didn't have any sort of intimacy or friendship. It was really based on that I would have these collapses of anxiety. And at that point he would be quite nice to me and be like, oh, you poor fragile thing. Uh, um, yes. And, and I, and so I sort of was like, I realized that the kind of dynamic of our entire relationship was based around me being this kind of weak, sort of crumbled down person and him being nice to me but then at other times he would kind of ignore, ignore me or shut me down in a very subtle way and mm. he you know things around the house or things around with the kids it was like he didn't care about them and I start I, I, I thought it was I thought maybe he's depressed Do you know what I mean things like that so it took I realized something wasn't right but I couldn't realize what it was but then as soon as I started to try and confront the problem get him to talk about it try and get him to go for therapy or counseling you know, I ended up in the spare room because I did start to not feel safe. So when I, I sort of started to not feel safe around him, I think maybe because I didn't understand his behaviour. Do you then, mean physically, not, not physically safe? Um, yeah, I remember when we, when we still shared a, a bedroom, I remember waking up in the morning and just being able to identify one morning that I just didn't feel safe with him there. I mean, I, didn't, I couldn't understand why. I just had a feeling of physical unsafety. Yes. And... So I sort of realized that I couldn't sleep in the same room as him anymore. I didn't, I felt unsafe. And, and then when I, the more I started to pull away, then behavior started to come up, which I was like, this is weird. This is like an abusive person because then the sort of verbal abuse, you know, the more overt emotional abuse and other types of escalations, threatening, um, you know, lots you know, different other things. And so, you know, I turned to Google to, to is this abuse and then I, I learned that um you know uh this behavior doesn't come out of nowhere um and that it's possible that you can have a more insidious form of abuse that is sometimes called you know either called psychological abuse or covert abuse or hidden abuse yes um and that you know this the and that I realized that what I've been going through for the past few years you know the symptoms I'd had were exactly what it was describing and I, so I yeah so did that feel like quite a light bulb moment? That, so you, this was you looking at Google. You at this stage hadn't spoken to anyone about it. No, I was looking at, you know, I was looking at sort of health websites and relationship websites. Mm. And yeah, I just, I realized that I was, had pretty much been in a textbook abusive relationship. It just yeah. hadn't taken the form up till then of the more aggressive, overt type that people tend to 
understand like they would recognize more yes. but i realized that i realized that the patterns of how he would um you know uh sh you know shut me down how he would disapprove like very quietly and subtly disapprove of things that i was doing um how he could be quite scary because his silent treatments were quite scary but i just yeah. felt like i'd done something wrong so i wasn't like why is he acting like a scary person i was like gosh i've done something awful um you, you always assumed it was you which of course is part of the pattern exactly so yeah. i think it, yeah. it took it took a process of a few months for me to really go something's wrong these things are wrong something's it's probably not me it's definitely something to do with something he's doing and then pulling away and then his he switched up to more overt things and then i was like you know right oh yeah. this is this is actually an abusive relationship i've actually been in an abusive relationship the whole time yeah and and if we can bring hannah in here where when did uh, at what point emma did you seek out help with or find hannah so um i had i did have i did seek out as soon as i was really identifying the abuse i sought out um a therapist who wasn't wasn't hannah it was somebody uh, sort of closer to where i live but then i had to um i had i found hannah because um i did make an escape escape attempt which oh. which didn't work um and then i i needed to i needed to find somebody to help me deal with that because i really crashed out at that point um because you were you had to go back to the home didn't I, you? I tried to leave and the court basically sent sent us back um which is a whole other story oh my goodness yeah so um and then i i really you know i wasn't able to function for several weeks after that not surprisingly um and i found hannah through a sort of friend of a friend who and i knew that she um had experience dealing you know working um, particularly with trauma, trauma and um i felt like you know uh, you know, her sort of mix of approaches was something that could help me in, a, you know, my situation that was really extraordinary where by this time I completely identified abuse. I, yeah. I knew that I was living with somebody very scary. Um, and, but at the same time, I was in no way able to leave that situation. And I wasn't sure at what point I would be able to leave that situation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And if we can bring you in, Hannah, from your point of view, what what was the person like who you met when the two of you got together? Um, I think the first thing that um, when Emma's friend called me and I heard Emma in the background saying, um, but please don't tell me that um, I need to leave and go to a refuge because I can't do that. I thought, gosh, um, you know, this is this is a very serious situation. And, um, you know, how are we going to be able to to deal with that if you're if you're still in in that abusive situation so um we worked um i think emma for a long time about really be, being able to be in control of what you could be in control of and being aware that you did still have a level of control um be albeit that might be internally or your thoughts or um just being able to lock lock a door or um, have some time. I think um, what uh, what was very shocking to me, I think at first was that, um, you know, Emma didn't have any r real privacy, not even in the bathroom. And so we, w we worked on, you know, gaining, regaining that control of having that pr little bit of privacy. Yes. Yeah. 
yeah. yeah, I mean, it was, I think I'd realized by that point that, I mean, effectively, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to leave until a series of court hearings had been completed. Um, and that process is slow and unpredictable. It's a long time. Uh, long, it? yeah. And, and when you said, when you said, felt you couldn't leave, what, can you drill into that a bit? Was that because you, you didn't have the confidence to leave? No, or? it was the court, you see, effectively, because I was unable to categorically prove the abuse because of the insidious nature of it, um, especially because it only, I'd only identified it after I'd decided to divorce and we'd sort of, you know, technically split up. Yes. I was told that there was no way the court would sort of support me in that and that I would be seen as and I would be seen as manipulating the situation to get custody of the children so I would be I had been told earlier and as soon as I filed for divorce I was and he became abusive I asked my solicitor and I said I think he's abusive I think we need to get out and he said I advise you not to do that because the court will take this view and you could lose the children because he, because he'd been unemployed and at home he was saying that he was the he was the chief house, carer. He was the, he was the child carer and the house husband. I had been had to go out to work in, for that reason, and he was. And so I was told, like, you better, you need, if you leave without the children, you've abandoned them, and if you leave with the children, you've taken, you know, you've taken them you've without taken his. Them. And so oh um, I left. I, I tried to leave in. Um, I tried to leave in April two thousand seventeen because at that point I'd. Um, I'd found my way to Vic, this is before meeting Hannah, I'd mm -hmm. found my way to victim support who were brilliant and they'd done a, a risk assessment. So I'd been to social services, I'd been to different people and none of, nobody had done a risk assessment or anything. They just said, well, it's all just sounds like it's your word against his. Um, victim support did a risk assessment and through, uh, I came out as high risk and was referred to Maroc, which is a multi-agency risk assessment conference where the different agencies in the borough, sort of police, health, um, um, and uh, social services, they all get together and discuss high risk people in the community and, and work out a plan. So I was referred to Marek. And when I was referred to Marek and read what that was, that I was a high risk person, I thought, well, I can't in good conscience as a mother stay here with my children. Because yeah. before I was obviously really worried, I, I would not sleep at night thinking, am I doing the right thing? Because I can't, I don't want to lose my children and they have to go and live in that environment forever and I don't have my children yeah. but at the same time if we're all at risk because um a lot of his behavior became very menacing and scary and I really didn't know what he was capable of I was absolutely terrified Gosh. I was like am I keeping am I putting us all at risk by just being here and you know that's not a choice that anyone should have no, to that's make. Uh, you're a, you're in a complete double bind there aren't you the people you were contacting did he was he aware of that no so he wasn't he wasn't aware of victim support before i tried to leave he knew that i was going to see a therapist i mean he would try and sort of use that against me so you know he told the social workers that i didn't care about the children because instead of spending my evenings with them i was going to therapy <laughs> and stuff yeah. like that so, um, so it was a no-win situation. Goodness so yeah, me. I mean, it was all it, everything was all like that. So it was very difficult. Just to perhaps get back to Hannah, and, and so you, you met Emma in this stage where she felt she couldn't, for quite practical-sounding reasons, leave the home. Yes. yes. How did you deal? How were you able to help at that stage? So I think um, Emma was having to be very alert all the time at home. 
and there was a lot of tension and anxiety all of the time in the home and so I think we worked very uh, a lot on um, deep relaxation at first um, breath control I think you said that 7-eleven breathing really really helped yeah that re- I, I use that a lot mm. I use that a lot so we did a lot of um, deep relaxation um, and then we also um, we did something which we called joy shots so that Emma would choose a, a, a shot of joy every day. So whether that was having um, a, a lovely song that she would listen to or she'd go for a drive or she'd do some some sort of exercise or she'd have a lovely coffee. So she would just give herself that injection every day. Yes. Of joy. Um, she, uh, we, we did, um, morning pages. So Emma would write, you know, sort of stream of consciousness every morning just to get, get the feelings out and, you know, possible frustration and anger. And then also we, we worked on using the anger, the anger as an energy, the anger and the frustration to really fuel her power. Yeah. And so she could stand firm and um refuse to be unhappy so we have this phrase refuse to be unhappy and be in control of things that she could be in control of however small that was because the other thing that is just occurring to me in the most awful way as children with abusive parents learn how to um how to be so that they escape the abuse as much as possible yes did emma did you did you sort of learn coping mechanisms like that I think the thing is, is that by the time he'd become overt, he knew that I was leaving him. And he knew the game was up, yeah. And I wasn't, I, I did consider not leaving him, even like after I realised he was awful I like, and I was terrified. I did think to myself, well, it's only, you know, it's only 13 years until the kids <laughs> have grown up. Mm-hmm. And if, 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 if the kids, are, if I'm, if the kids are going to have to go and live with him, I'd rather, Be I'd rather, I'd rather live like this for like 13 years, even though I, I barely know how I would survive it. And I might not even survive it, but I, I was like, you know, maybe I, I would, I wouldn't have to do that. Um, yes. but, um, you know, deep down, of course, I realized that wasn't possible. I wouldn't have survived it. I wouldn't have survived it. Um, and, um, and so I think what I just, I think what I realized at that point was that I, I, because I'd identified abuse and started to educate myself, I of course knew that there was nothing that I could do one way or the other to, um, to, for anything to stop the way he to behaved. To make it better, yes. I mean, I did, yeah. once he was, he was calling me lots of horrible names and, um, you know, I, I turned around to him and I said, if you really think that I'm all those things, why don't you just let me go? Why would you not just want to be shot of me? And he said, if you don't leave me, you're not those things. Oh, crikey. So, (laughs) so I realized that I wasn't dealing with anything resembling any form of logic that I could deal with. (laughs) So, so uh, presumably at some point, obviously, you did get out. How did that happen? I had to wait for the court hearings to roll around. Gosh. So just to um, go back. So um, after I was referred to the Marrick and I realised we were all high risk, I tried to leave. But then I, I had to defend that in court and I tried to get a protective order. But he had also then claimed that he was abused. I, I was abusing him because... 
that's the you know that's the manipulative side yeah. um and the court the judge just said oh it's very complicated i haven't got time to hear this today it was supposed to be a short hearing you'll just have to go back until we can sort it out how long was that <sighs> so then was... i was then there for another six months yeah. um, oh until goodness. all the hearings had rolled around and then by the time it got to the child's children's matter hearing i was told do not bring up abuse again do not because the social workers didn't know how to identify psychological abuse either mm. and they'd sort of gone oh well they don't get on very well <laughs> and um and so i was told not if i if i sort of pressed that that i would almost certainly be seen as the trouble maker and it would might affect the kids so um so you know it's the standard uh divorce court sort of 50 50 um you know childcare, and then once that was decided i could leave i could leave i could leave that was done and so i could leave but i had to i had to carry on paying for his accommodation and bills because you know i, I had to because that was the only way i could leave so then i got then you know then so that's obviously like financial abuse but i think you know the thing about all these methods of abuse is that i, I think it's very rare for someone to just use one tool of abuse so if yes you, if you have everything available you're probably having financial abuse at the same time yes, um, yes. so I, I, leaving was this very gradual thing and meanwhile can... you were still seeing hannah yes regularly yes. All, all the way through this wasn't it it was every week i think wasn't it at that time yes uh, when it was very intense i was coming every single week to see hannah and it was yeah. it was a lifeline it was an absolute lifeline um because as i was saying it was it was like a seat, you know, I saw it very much as like a siege type situation where, um, you know, there was this kind of, could I last it out? It wasn't going to last forever, but I didn't know how long. And I, I, I knew that his, get, his aim was to wear me down. So at one point, I, I can't remember when I realised it, but I realised that although he was very scaring and scary and menacing, I realised that he, want, he wanted me to crumble. He would sort yes. of, he told a lot of people, he told social workers and a lot of people in their circle that I was suicidal and that I was going to kill myself. And I wasn't suicidal, but the fact that he kept telling people that made me think that he wanted me to, to crumble. And yes. I thought, and I, so I was like, I just have to last. I just have to sustain myself emotionally and psychologically in order to be able to last mm -hmm. and for it not to overwhelm me. And, and by I, this by this stage, your friends and family were in the know, were they? Or not entirely by the sound of it. They sort of had his his side of things. Um, yeah, one friend, he approached one friend when I started uncovering abuse and she sort of didn't leave it. But I think his behaviour then, he kind of let him, you know, he started to lose control. So I think there was one point where she was trying to mediate between us yeah. and he started sort of... Um, using slurs to describe me and things and she was just like well this isn't i can't i can't talk to you if you're gonna be like that um but i think i think i, I was very lucky another thing that a lot of um you know a lot of uh, survivors of psychological abuse don't have in that i think a lot of them also had the penny drop moments when i described what was going on that i said you know in retrospect they were like oh well actually yes that that makes sense because we'd all you know they had a gut feeling they had they sort of noticed things but couldn't quite put a name to them and i think yeah. i think mm. the people i was lucky that the people who were close to me did support me mm. and I, 
the, I'm assuming there was a there was a wonderful moment when you left, but yeah. perhaps you didn't immediately feel better, or did you? How did that go, and how did the the continuing therapy help? Um, well, I sort of couldn't believe it when I was finally able to, you know, shut the front door of my house behind me. Um, it was obviously bittersweet because I then I wasn't living in the same place as my children half the time. That you know, so that was something I ha had to deal with. But I think I. I I, what, so your children were still with him at this stage? Um, half and half. Right. So, um, so there was that. Um, um, so yeah, I was seeing Hannah and I think it was then that I started to feel a few weeks after that that I could deal with some specific trauma work mm -hmm. because, um, you know, Hannah, you know, we talked about the fact that while I was still there, although I was dealing with a lot of trauma, that I'm starting to deal with that while I was still encountering it was not the best um it was very difficult yes mm, mm. whereas once it was historical even if it was only by a day <laughs> then mm. it was much easier to 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 deal with mm. and and hannah how did for, from your side of things how how did the therapeutic process change once emma had moved well, then, out then we did um start to do as emma says some trauma recovery i think even before that though emma was um once emma knew about her inner needs and what she, what she needed and started to meet those in a more healthy way because you know she was in control now that was the start of weakening that that toxic um environment yes so so psychoeducation of our needs and resources absolutely. that sort of human givens yeah, framework absolutely yeah. and, and, and building and maintaining resilience and taking the actions necessary to be safe and secure as, as far as was possible but then when Emma did leave, we did, we have done probably about three or four mm. sessions now on trauma recovery. And it's not, it's not been easy, has it? It's, it's been, um, I, I think, um, you know, sometimes we store trauma in the body. And I think that certainly that's been the case for Emma. So I noticed when we do those trauma recovery sessions, they're very um, visceral, they're very physical um, experiences and, and not, not, not easy but I think they have lifted, lifted things and the heaviness has gone from some of those yeah. events that we've... That uh, we've... And I, I think it's, you know, the, what, that's one thing that I had to learn is that although the abuse was primarily psychological, that it has, you know, it, dealing with it is quite physical um, in terms of, like, for example, I... Um, until a certain point I used to enjoy going running and then after a certain point sort of being kind of in my body and moving my body in a certain way like I would just it became it was too emotionally painful I would just start crying and I well, realized you were probably exhausted as well you weren't sleeping yeah you were suffering anxiety there must have been a very deep-seated exhaustion as well I would think yes mm. that's and yeah because you know when I when I don't have the kids i find myself you know I mean part of it is kind of um you know sort of depression like inability to get out of bed mm. so I'm sort of very high functioning some days and other days I just can't do things um but I think when I started when it was amazing when I started to approach the trauma recovery it was very scary because I didn't want to go there I really didn't want to go there <laughs> but I felt like I was ready like I felt like it had come to the top and when I first moved out although I was happy to move out I still felt like I describe it as like like there was a fire alarm going off in my head the whole time. If you imagine what it's yes. like when you're in a building and the very, the fire alarm goes off and it's so 
invasive in your head like there's no way you could possibly concentrate on anything I, I felt like that all the time and after the first trauma session we did it it didn't magically disappear but it felt like it went down to a level where I, it things got, got a bit quieter yeah yes. and I think the thing is because because the abuse was so prolonged and because it wasn't you know single events and it was very subtle it's also really hard. And I think one of the things with psychological abuse is you don't really know what someone's done to you. Like, even if you know, oh, it's psychological abuse and he sort of did this and did that, you, it's, even then it's really hard to kind of have a picture in your mind of exactly the things mm. that were done. Yes. And I, and I can imagine it's a bit like finding a bruise and thinking, gosh, how did that, this yeah. sort of, in psychological terms, you're still finding the bruises probably. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly it. So sometimes I will just, um, you know, so it's just things just come up and I'm like, oh, I've just realized this whole aspect of what yeah. happened. Um, and I've realized that I'm still really carrying it around in a very sort of... Sometimes it's a feeling, intense. isn't it? Yeah. It's, a, it's a feeling rather than an actual event. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So we, it was quite recently, it's just a sense of like, I didn't, couldn't really identify the feeling first, but Hannah helped me identify it as disgust. And it was really about a sense of, like I said, even though I... I know that it's not the victim's fault and blah, blah, blah. But somewhere in my body, I had a sense of sort of like self-betrayal that I should have protected myself. I should have done more. And it had become turned into this really visceral feeling of wanting to get out, escape my body and wanting to mm. get out mm. and things mm. like that. And I, I just, I think I've been carrying it around for a long time, but it just took me a while to identify it. And then we did some trauma work on it and it's really, really helped. And I think that's what, what it's like. It's sort of different things just start to come up when they're ready. Mm. Layers, yeah. taking the layers off, isn't it? Yeah. Working. So, you know, I was, I was going to ask how long was the recovery process, but of course you're still going through it. Um, so, but what level of recovery do you feel if, I, if you can sort of put that into words at the moment? Um, I think it's, it's really hard to say. I mean, apart from the fact that, you know, I'm still having to encounter, you know, there are certain abusive behaviours that I'm still encountering. Um, so what is the situation? You're still sharing the children? Yeah, and I think the thing is, is that when you have like, any form of abuse is that, you know, any channel that exists between, um, you know, the survivor and the abusers like any channel at all can and will be used as a channel of abuse so um you know you know there's um you know whether it's a conversation that ought to be factual about the children then becomes something where um what i've done or said gets twisted the wrong way and then used in some way against me or whether social workers are being told things that aren't true or you know you know uh, the children being told things you know it, it sort of it carries on and you know there have been some surprises and some things which are sadly not that surprising anymore and it's it's you know it's just it's um you know it's sadly an ongoing thing because um there's no reason why a person who thinks that's what I'm for <laughs> would stop thinking that's what I'm for um so I just have to find a way to manage my recovery on the one side and getting back into life yeah. while you know mitigating you know the effects of that so it's I I, I you know it's it's a journey it's a it's a journey that I'm on 
and you know I've got to look after different things um you know and are you still seeing Hannah are you still having therapy yeah so I'm not seeing I'm not I'm not seeing Hannah every week anymore but you know I still I still come and as I say because it's I know that when things come up um you know that's that you know we can go through some stuff and I can get some extra tools or you know sort of if I need another trauma session then that's yeah that's what I need to do um I would I would like to come <laughs> from best life circumstances <laughs> but um but there's no doubt that I think I think it's not only directly the tools that I learned and the things that we talked about, but while I was seeing Hannah, um, I was able to, I think just because of the power that you get back for yourself, I remember realizing that I just stopped feeling scared of him. I mean, the things he was doing was scary, but I sort of, I think I was able to kind of, get him down to size if you know what I mean because yes. that abuse does especially psychological abuses you you feel that they've got more power than perhaps they actually do and I was able to realize that you know he's not and obviously that's an illusion that they want to create as well that they know everything and well I, yes it relates back to those three things you said at the beginning the intermittent reinforcement the gaslighting and the uncertainty yes if you agree with that Emma that's kind of what keeps you under the cosh yeah I mean it's very easy for somebody um to you know withhold information or do do things that kind of stymie various things you're supposed to be doing to keep you in a state of uncertainty yeah. um and so again it's just a technique that I've had to learn um I mean you know you could say that dealing with uncertainty is a technique for dealing with life in general life but yes <laughs> but clearly when it's being specifically used to put me in a um, state of stress um, that I have to find ways of kind of ring fencing that to identify that this is what's going on and to um, be able to kind of manage that and I think em Emma's talked about um, rather um, than her recovery she's talked about um, rebuilding because um, I think we, we covered nice. in one session we covered that there was a lot of loss and grief for the old Emma and um, yeah. leaving that behind and, and having to find this, this new person. So this rebuilding process has been important too, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah it's definitely, I, I definitely feel that there are some things that just get lost in the fire as it were. Um, and yes. Yeah, so, so you're not, you haven't completely found the old Emma, but there's a new stronger person has emerged from that fire. Yeah, I think it's different. I mean, I think there's a kind of, I think there's this kind of thing with survivors to say, you know, oh, it made you stronger and things like that. Um, I think I was always, I, the way I think of it is that I was always strong, but somebody just taught me that I wasn't. Um, uh -huh. yep. um, and I've just regained what was always there. I've seen it. Mm. I always, I always saw Emma as a real lioness, you know, lioness <laughs> with her cubs, with her children. Oh, how lovely! Um, yes, just, yeah. And and but then you know other aspects of, you know, it it it, it changes your perspective on a lot of things. So you know, things that I used to enjoy are not really that important to me anymore. But other things that weren't, uh, you know, I've reached a new appreciation for things that maybe I didn't before. So. It, it feels like you rebuild and you rebuild slightly differently. Um, and that's just who you are now. And yeah. that's, just, that's just, 
you know how it is you know that's just what it's like yeah and and how have your children been through all of this have they uh, I'm not sure how young they were but have they had any inkling of what's been going on or well uh, it's very it's very difficult it's very difficult to say in some ways because they were quite young when it first started becoming overt and you know we had scenes with like you know the children hiding under the table from scary sort of Mm. moments and displays and things and you know so I've had and my my daughter was too young to have really have a conversation about it but with my son he did and um you know I I was more worried really with the kind of gaslighting side of things yes um, on them because if it took me years to get what was going on um their children so um I um you know they they would repeat back to me sometimes things that they've been told and sometimes those things were very upsetting um and uh and they 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 separately have shown some signs of distress and we we've been sort of supported by cams and things like that although that takes a long time so we haven't actually been able to see anyone yet but um um but i think you know i did a lot of research research on what i can do in this situation and and what i try and do is to get them to feel confident in themselves so it's almost i've worked hannah's advised me on that as well so it's almost like they start to appreciate their inner resources and they start to be able to question for themselves recognizing their emotion yeah naming their emotions also like i i kind of the sort of joy shots and stuff so one thing that used to happen in our home was that if I was playing say music that I liked in the kitchen and we were having a dance around, he might walk into the room and just switch it off. Uh, so, yes. um, you know, I just consciously try and make sure that our home has music and has fun and has creativity so that they can really feel free. And, um, I just, and I, you know, and, and I talked to them about, um, you know, it's quite interesting because there's a lot going on at the moment, you know, with like, you know, social justice issues and things like yeah. that. And um, that gives a really interesting sort of topical framework to talk about, you know, when people might want you to think someone else is, you know, a certain way. But, you know, we have to think for ourselves and we have to, you know, decide for ourselves what we think is right. And you know, that kind of thing. So we, we, I try and have really good conversations with them. Yeah. Emma did a really a wonderful thing and she, um, she had a sort of um, a, a list of what the children expected from the grown-ups. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. So yeah. I was like, what, do, what rules should the children have on what the grown-ups should do? Yes. Um, and, um, you know, it was really funny, you know, it's like, put your phones down. (laughs) But, you know, they they were saying other, you know, they were saying other things as well. But I, you know, I I just try and model, you know, respect and listening to them. And, you know, while having boundaries, I think it's, when I first left, I, I began to realise how it, it was difficult for me, and especially my son, who's quite strong willed, is that, um, I think we would both get really set off by any kind of form of conflict. It's just normal. So what would happen yeah. I was trying to set a normal boundary is that he would then sort of um, rebel a bit. And then because of the loud noises and the feeling of tension, 
I would become uns very unsettled and then he would become very unsettled. And it was like we both couldn't really handle that situation. Yes. So, so again, your fight or flight was kicking off very quickly. Very and probably his as well. Hyper alert. Yes. Yeah. So yes. it's sort of like we both, I feel like me leading him, because obviously he doesn't know what's going on, but I feel like we both had to travel hand in hand to a place where we can do all the things we're supposed to do yes. um, in, a, in a way that we both feel safe with. Yeah. I could ask so many more questions to both of you, actually. I just wanted to ask you this. Um, what advice would you give to anyone suffering from psychological abuse? And we could extend that to anyone who thinks someone they know is suffering. So yeah, I mean, I was going to say that if you already got to the point where you can identify it's psychological abuse, you've already come a very long way. Yes. Because most people suffering psychological abuse have no idea because that's the nature of it. Yeah. Um, I would so I would say if you've got that far and you're like, I think I think he's gaslighting me, I think he's or she, you know, or she or or whoever yeah. is gaslighting me, then you've already come a really, really long way. And it it's not easy, but the fact that you've got that far is take courage and there are a lot of resources on there are a lot of really good resources online there are a lot of really good books um there's a, a lady called shannon thomas who's written a book called healing from hidden abuse and it's an it's a really great book that very humanely kind of walks you through what this is all about and how you can start to piece things together for yourself and all that sort of things um, so and and I would say just you know find a really Speak good therapist. Yeah, yeah find a good therapist. Find a good therapist. If you're in a situation of of where there's a marriage and you're going to need a solicitor, you must find one who understands these things. If they don't understand this thing, um, you know you must find one who gets it because they will help you navigate the rest. Right, yes. um, and Hannah, from what you said about. Uh, the term coercive control sort of coming in, uh, yeah. I can't remember quite, and it was that in 2016? Um, 15, yeah. So, 15. So, why, in Emma's case, why wasn't that noted and would it be now? I think By the authorities, I mean. Why, you know, why didn't that ever crop up? She, I think there's a gap, I think, because I went to the police, when I went to the police a couple of years ago, I think there's still a gap between what they didn't seem to know what could be used as evidence and um, they told me that I didn't have any evidence but I've since had advice that a lot of the things I was told weren't evidence like you know my my family seeing that my personality completely changed and the fact that he accompanied me to doctor's appointments and you know the fact that I was showing up at GP appointments with symptoms like in the nice guidelines to identify abuse, mm. I was spot on. It's just that my GP didn't actually name it at the time, but it's all in my medical record. So I think, I think I was told by the police, oh, well, you know, you don't have, like, because I don't have a broken arm or something that, uh, oh, it's just not there. But I think it, that was, I think it's just like all the kind of cogs in the system are still, you know, were, you know, it, someone showing, turning up to a police station and the right things happening is still, bit of an issue it's in, not quite it's not all quite um linked up yet no. so, yes. and i think yeah. yeah and i think also i think you know really it's um 
Um, and for me as well, that once I was in the divorce process, you can't go to Crown Prosecution Service and family law and family courts at the same time. Right. So once I was in that process, I couldn't, I couldn't really go to the police. They were like, even if we sort of, even if we did have evidence, we couldn't do anything about it because you're in the you're family in the court process. system. Gosh. And the family court system depended on a social worker investigation that would confirm that this was actually abuse. And they weren't able to do that. The um, mm. social worker, she, she, the way she described the behaviour describes abuse, but then she, she said, oh, well, I think he's just upset because of the breakup. So it was kind of, oh. she kind of saw it, but she didn't see it. And then once she didn't see it, the, the family court was depending on that. So yeah. I was really, I, basically the way that the system is, I wasn't, I wasn't able to do that. But I really hope, that was a couple of years ago, and I really hope now that I would say, you know, go to victim support who, or um, solace run by Women's Aid who help you navigate services, make sure that you're, you're getting seen properly. And, um, you know, um, yeah, I, I think it's, 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 it's all about getting the right support because the frontline services, I think, is, can still be quite patchy in how they're dealing with people. Mm. And uh, Hannah, is there anything you'd like to add to that? I just think um, that all of us deserve to be treated with dignity and, and respect. And, you know, breaking the chain of abuse has got to be our priority for the happiness of everyone involved. Because I think even perpetrators of psychological abuse perhaps have also struggled with that somewhere along the line in order to yes. have learnt this behaviour, possibly. Um, I don't know the statistics around that, but that would be my sort of gut feeling about about that. Um, but it's it's so important that we do break this chain of abuse because it obviously has repercussions for, you know, our little ones and, and the way that they behave as well. Well, absolutely. I, yeah, I mean, since I, because I decided to be more open about my experiences in my workplace, and my workplace is about 100 people, and when I told my story, over 10 separate people came up to me and said that they'd either grown up with abuse or had experienced it in a relationship and so you can imagine the people who didn't come up to me mm. and you know that's just that's a normal kind of you know that's just a normal professional office somewhere in, in London um, and yeah so, so really our best way forward is to raise awareness because you know mm -hmm. the, the the police or all, all the uh, professionals involved just need to know more about it yes yes yeah. and it, I think I think they need to really get over that sort of stereotypes because when you look at the nice like the law is in the right place the nice guidelines are in the right place mm -hmm. all this stuff if it was but I think that when you walk in the room I still think there's a problem that people think a victim of domestic abuse or a perpetrator of domestic abuse behave in a certain way that they might not actually behave and I think I I think professionals themselves suffer from a kind mm. of cognitive dissonance mm. of not wanting to see it none of Absolutely. us want none mm. of us want abuse to exist it's horrifying mm. and I think really people will kind of you know they don't people do not want to name the elephant in the room and and they don't even you know they they don't they see it but they don't see it i've experienced this now so many times with different people they're looking right at it and they're even describing it back to me but they won't call it what it is yeah. they'll attribute it to something else yeah name it as abusive behavior yeah. Yeah. keep naming it keep raising awareness yes yes, yes. yes.
Well, thank you so much for both talking so openly and extensively, um, but especially to you, Emma, for talking about your traumatic experience. And, and I'm so delighted to hear that you're um, telling your story to other people and uh, getting those reactions, obviously, is, uh, uh, is a good thing, really, that they, these people feel they can come up to you and, and, and speak. So thank you, Hannah and Emma, both of you so much. Now to listeners, if you or someone you know is experiencing psychological abuse or abuse of any kind for that matter, and would like to speak to a human givens therapist, please visit our website, it's hgi.org.uk and click on the find a therapist button and you'll find your nearest therapist through that. Um, We'll add this link on to the podcast page together with a list of charities which might be able to help. And I think, as Emma mentioned, a few charities will pop those on. Now, please do share this podcast with your friends and colleagues and certainly with anyone who you think might need to hear it. Uh, but generally, just to help raise awareness, as we've been saying, on psychological domestic abuse, what it is and uh, how it's going on. Um, and this is, we're putting this out specifically during our national 2019 Mental Health Awareness Week. But obviously, it's not just for that week. It's uh, something that can be listened to anytime. It'll be on our website anytime. So thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much for speaking, Emma and Hannah. And we hope you all have a good day. Bye for now.